All right, this is our second week of a three-week series. We're taking a little break from the book of John um, just to trace the thread of this, this story that began last week in Numbers chapter 20, where Moses struck the rock in disobedience and was kept out of the promised land. And the name of that place is Meribah, as, as you'll recall, and that means quarreling in the Hebrew. Now, Meribah comes up a couple of other times in the scriptures, and that's why we're in Psalm 95 this morning. So go ahead and open up to Psalm 95. I'll read it, and then we'll get into it. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God's word. This is an interesting psalm and here's why. The main reason and, and the thing that you might notice right off of the bat is that there's, there are, it's like there are two parts to this psalm that are glued together. Did you feel it when I was reading? There's a, call, there's a call to worship, an invitation to come before the Lord and worship him. And then the psalm turns and the tone shifts. And now we get a warning directly from God about hardening our hearts. There's this abrupt shift in the middle. And I've always felt it. And I, apparently I'm not the only one who feels it because if any of you are familiar with the Anglican common, Book of Common Prayer, have any of you ever used that or seen it? Um, this psalm in, it has a long tradition of being used as a call to worship. And in, in Latin, uh, it's called, this is called the Venite. This psalm is known as the Venite, which, which is the first word of the psalm. It just means come in Latin, come. It's a call to worship. But as a call to worship, Interestingly enough, in the Book of Common Prayer, it ends at verse 7. It ends at verse 7 because that's where the call to, call to worship ends as well with we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, and then it leaves off the rest. So there is this shift in the middle that is, is very obvious. And I, one of the things that we need to get to the bottom of this morning is why that's there. Because... Some scholars have tried to say that this is really, these are really fragments of two different songs put together. 
That's one of the, that's, some have taken it that far and said that this really wasn't one composition. It was just parts of two that were just kind of jammed together and, and left that way. So in doing that, what we have to do is get to the connection between worship and hard hearts. That's the issue here. What is the connection between worship and hard hearts? And it doesn't really seem, if you heard this song on the radio, about halfway through, you would, it would change to a minor key and you'd be like, what just happened, right? Um, it doesn't really have the unity that we expect um, of, a, of a good poem or a song. And so what's going on? That's one thing we're going to get to the bottom of. But just to remind you, in case you weren't here last week, this is, this is part of a series. And we started in Numbers 20 last week where we looked at Moses's failure in a place called Meribah. You remember the people complained. They grumbled. They, it says they quarreled with Moses. They were arguing with him, asking him, why did you bring us out here to die? And remember, this is the second generation of people to do that. So in Exodus chapter 17, the original generation of slaves who had left Egypt did the same thing in a different place, and and that place was named Meribah as well. So it's a little bit confusing, but this happened twice. God brought water out of a rock for people twice, once for the first generation and once for the second generation. And that's the background. And we looked at that last week. So Moses, if you recall, was he was supposed to. His, his job that day was to rehearse for the people, to rehearse their deliverance. Remember, the rock was like Pharaoh. It was hard. And he was to speak to the rock. And then out of the rock, God would strike the rock. God would strike the rock. And out of the rock, would the people would come, and that was like the water that came out. And that was the, he was supposed to rehearse the gospel in that way, and he didn't. And for that, he was kept out of the promised land. So they were, they were not just, God didn't just want to give them water for their thirst. He wanted to give them life for their hearts. And that's what they didn't get because of Moses' own hard-heartedness. So that's the story that we're working with here. And, and now... The reason we're here is because now this name Meribah, it shows up in the middle of Israel's songbook. And what I want to show you guys, and we'll wrap this up next week, I want to show you how the New Testament will take an Old Testament story, and oftentimes it will, it will, the thread will go through the Psalms somehow because it was woven into Israel's worship, and it will come out in the New Testament pointing to Jesus. And I want to show you the whole thing. And this is a great example because it's just a quick little story. There's nothing else in the Old Testament named Meribah. This is it. So whenever we hear Meribah, think to yourself, water from a rock. And we're going to wrap this theme up next week. So here it is right here in the middle of the, the Psalms. And God himself cites this place named Meribah as an example of what he wants Israel to avoid. Now, at the same time, what happens in Psalm 95, there's an image that's introduced here in the psalm that is incredibly important, and that is the image of a a heart that is hard as a rock, a heart that's hard as a rock. And we saw this a little bit with Pharaoh. It talked about Pharaoh hardening his heart against God, right? But here, right here in this song, we see the, the, the rock-like heart become an, a real image. And then the prophets pick up on this theme as well, and it works its way all the way down to Christ, as we'll see next week. 
So this morning, we're going to specifically look, last week was about Moses. This morning, we're going to look at what it means for a church or a community of God's people, like the nation of Israel, to be hard-hearted before the Lord. That's the theme of Psalm 95, or at least the second half. So let's, it breaks down really neatly into two parts. The first part is worship through, through verse 7, and then uh, verse 7b through the end, um, we're looking at unbelief. So briefly, let's start with worship. A call to worship is when somebody stands up and says, let's praise God, my people. Let's praise the Lord because he deserves it. Because he deserves it. That is appropriate for us to do in response to God's love. He deserves our worship. He is worthy of our worship. And there's four things in the early verses, the first four or five verses of the psalm, there's four things that we're urged to do. And each of them is prefaced with the words, let us. So look at verse one. It says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us sing. That's the first thing. The second thing, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us make a joyful noise. Now we're talking about the sound, the sound of praise. The third thing in verse two, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. When we enter his presence, we come with gratitude in our hearts. And fourth, also in verse two, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And so we see in the first two verses, the theme of a joyful noise is extremely, extremely important. And that's the call to worship, to come and make a joyful noise before the Lord. And what's happening here is that we're contrasting a joyful noise. At the end, we're contrasting it with something else. If, if you think about it, the, the opposite of a joyful noise, what is it? Grumbling. Grumbling, thank you. The opposite of a joyful noise is complaining. It's, compla- it's not crying. Weeping is a far more authentic response to suffering than complaining. Complaining The Lord does not put up with complaining unless you bring it to him. Grumbling to each other, he never puts up with it. So the the joyful, grateful, worshipful sound of God's people is contrasted. It's set in opposition to the sound of grumbling or complaining. And if you have kids, you know the difference between a joyful sound and grumbling, don't you? You be in the, you, you don't even need to yeah, you don't even need to be in the same room. You don't even need to hear the content of their words to know the difference between a joyful sound. The other day, Isaiah was playing with Josiah and making him laugh. There is no better sound than that. There's no better sound than that. That's a joyful noise. However, every once in a while, the pastor's children get to complaining. It does happen. That's not a joyful sound. That's the opposite of a joyful sound. And, that, and I do the same thing. They learn it from me. They get it from me. I grumble or complain when God uh, doesn't do things the way I thought he would or he puts something in my life that I'm not happy about. Grumbling is the opposite of a joyful noise. Now, in Exodus 16, 12, we're told that God hears both. 
He hears both. Exodus 16, 12, it says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. And by the way, that's right before he gives them water for, from a rock for the first time. He hears their grumbling. He also hears the joyful noises that we make. And so the question for us is what kind of noise are we going to make as God's people? What kind of noise are we going to make as God's people? And that's the first fill in the blank there in your notes. When God hears from us, let it be a joyful noise that he hears. When God hears from us, let it be a joyful noise that he hears. I want to stop here and say that lament is also biblical. There's a whole book devoted to lamentation. Pleading with the Lord is also appropriate. And certainly, if you have a complaint, what you should do with it is take it to God in prayer. Absolutely 100% of the time appropriate to bring your complaint before the Lord. But don't complain to your neighbor. Don't put those cares and those burdens on the person beside you. Take them to, take them to the Lord. But what I'm suggesting to you is that when the congregation of God's people comes together, Under most circumstances, under most circumstances, the tone of our gathering should be one of joy and gratitude. And we just lost one of our church members on Friday night. Stella Gonzalez was a member of this church. So how could we walk in here and make a joyful sound on Sunday morning? Well, it's because we know that she's in the hands of her Savior right now. So no matter what is going on around us, it is right, it is proper, it's necessary for, the, for our gathering to be a gathering of where joy and gratitude are heard, not grumbling. That's the key. And I think one of the things that really, that really helps us to keep this in line to, to achieve this is to remember that the glory of God, our God, is greater than our problems. The glory of the Lord is greater than the magnitude of our problems. Look at verse 6. It says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Verses 1 through 5 are called to worship based on simply on who God is. He's the maker. He's a great king above all gods, it says in verse 3. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, the sea is his and the dry land. This is who God is. He's the creator. Everything belongs to him, including our worship. He's entitled to it because of who he is. But then in verse six, something else, we're we're brought closer. We're brought closer in to the presence of God. It says, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. Now we're being invited to worship God on the basis of our relationship with him, who he is to us. It's like the psalmist is saying, come closer. Don't just stand at a distance and sing. Come right here to the foot of his throne and kneel down and remember that you are his covenant people. You have a relationship with God. Worship him not only because he's great, but because he's yours. That's what he's saying. He's your God. He's our God. Come and worship. And by the way, it's also interesting that the closer you get to God, the lower you are. Right? You see it? 
Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. That's what he's saying. So there is, there's an approach in this psalm. There's a progression to it. It does have unity, and I'm trying to bring that out. And the, the, the progression that it has is, is seeing the Lord's praise because God deserves it. He's great. Then the psalmist says, come closer in humility. And then the last part of the, of the psalm, it says, remember your salvation. Remember your salvation. And God's going to talk to us about unbelief. And so that takes us into our second section, which starts in verse 7. The shift in the, this is a poem. This is meant to be sung. And the shift in the poem happens right at the end of verse 7. Did you notice that the, that the verses kind of break funny? Almost all of the time in the, in the Psalms, your verse, the little number marking the verse comes at the beginning of a line. Here it comes in the middle of the line. Do you see that? There's a reason for that. Because with the word today, God is talking now. Today, if you hear his voice, actually it's verse eight, do not harden your hearts. That's where God's voice comes in. It's like the psalmist says, <coughs> Listen to God and then hands him the microphone. And verse eight is God talking all the way through the end of the psalm. Do not harden your hearts. This is God now. He's given us a warning. Immediately, God begins to speak. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. And he calls up, he calls it up. The story of the people's grumbling and testing the Lord and quarreling with Moses so the tone of the, of the psalm shifts right here. Did you feel it? From, from a cheerful, joyful call to worship to a stern warning. It's right there. That's what, that's what happens. And so what exactly is God warning us about? What does it mean to harden your heart in the context of the story of Meribah that we spent last week looking at? A little bit of context about when and, and what occasion this psalm may have been written for. Um, some scholars have found evidence that this was um, one of the psalms that was composed for the dedication of the second temple in a, a, just before the year 500 B.C. So a little bit of history. After the wilderness, after God brought the people out of Egypt, and 40 years they spent in the wilderness, he brought them into the promised land and he settled them in the land. And do you remember, what are, what are all of the historical books about? Judges, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. What's, what's the great theme? All the ways that Israel failed to believe in God. You remember? Just this cycle of, I mean, it happened before the Kings. It happened under the Judges. The book of Judges is bleak. It's full of really, really hard and terrible stories. And then God gives them a king and it doesn't, it, it's better for a little while because they have a good king in David. But then after him and after Solomon, things go downhill quickly. And there's just this cycle of the people going astray in their hearts and God bringing them back through suffering. And then they stay with him and they, and they have faith for a little while, but then they go astray in their hearts again. And that's just a, that's just a, repetitive cycle that happens in the history of Israel. So there's idolatry and then there's defeat 
And finally, after lots and lots of warnings, God allows the nation of Assyria to come in and take the northern tribes captive into exile. And then he finally allows the nation of Babylon to come and take the, the tribe of Judah um, into exile. And then they were in exile for a while and the people were crying out for relief just like they had in Egypt. You remember? In Egypt, it was, the, it was the cries of his people that God says, I've heard that and now I'm gonna do something. And the same thing happens when they're in Babylon. God says, I've heard my people and I'm gonna bring them back. And he does. And he brings a remnant back from exile to, to Jerusalem and he tells them, rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of the city. And so what happens is they do this. They, re, they build another temple. Solomon's had been destroyed. They rebuild it. It's not as spectacular, but it's a temple and it's a place where they can meet with their God. And they have a dedication to the temple. And this was very likely one of the songs that was written for them to sing on that day. And that's important. Here's why. God is saying to them, he's being very intentional in the story that he references to tell them what he expects now. If you hear his voice, he says in verse eight, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. The deliverance from Babylon is in direct parallel to the deliverance from Egypt. God is saying a thousand years ago, I did this for your fathers. And you know what they did? They immediately turned away from me. They hardened their hearts toward me. Say, now I've delivered you from Babylon just like them. You were captives. You were helpless in that place. Now I brought you back. I brought you back into the promised land. Don't act like them. Don't do what they did. Don't harden your hearts like that because you're in the same situation. I brought you back. I brought you to the place where you're supposed to be now stay with me. Now that I've delivered you, he's saying, don't make the same mistake that your fathers made after I delivered them. So here's what God is saying. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. When God brought them out of Egypt, he said, don't forget what I've done for you. And now when God brings them back from exile, he says, don't forget what I've done for you. And in the year of our Lord, 2023, God is still saying, don't forget what I've done for you. It's a theme. It is a theme. Remember your salvation. So when we get to verse 10 and it says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. And I said, these are people who go astray in their heart. To go astray in your heart is to leave behind the message of the gospel and begin to fixate on the cares and the worries of this world as if God's not gonna deliver you again. It's to forget what he's already done for you and act like you need someone else or something else to save you from this crisis because we don't see our Lord. He must have abandoned us. And that's why they made a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai and we could go on with the list. So the Israelites were thirsty in the desert. This is the story of Meribah, both the first and the second time. The Israelites were thirsty, and instead of celebrating 
what their God was going to do. Instead of joyful anticipation, they talked like everything was hopeless and God had abandoned them. And now we need something. We're going to die because we don't have any water. They totally forgot that God had brought them out of Egypt and now he was going to give them water as well. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if the day they were thirsty, if they had come before the Lord and they said, God, you delivered us. You brought us out here. Instead, they, said, they came to Moses and they said, why have you brought us out here? Moses isn't the one who brought them out. It wasn't his idea. It was God. If they had come to God, if they could come to the door of the tabernacle and said, Lord, we are thirsty, but we know that you are going to provide because of what you did before. We know you're not going to abandon us. What a beautiful picture of faith that would have been instead of grumbling and complaining. The point is this. Everything that generation did wrong in the desert. It says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He says, I hated that generation. I despised them for the way they acted, for the way that they talked. Everything that generation did wrong was nothing but a a refusal, a failure and a refusal to remember their salvation. That was it. They cut themselves off from the memory of what God had done. That is what it means to harden your heart. That is what it means to rebel against your God. That's what it means not to know God's ways. Verse 10, that's the heart of idolatry. That's the source of our cowardice. That's what turns a church inside out with conflict, forgetting the gospel, walking away, turning your back on that message. And that's what robs our joy and destroys our peace. So now, now you can see how the two halves of this psalm fit together. When we grumble, when we complain, the spirit of what we're saying We're saying essentially, God, how could you let this happen? When we worship, we're saying we can't wait to see how you're going to get us through this. You see the difference? Same situations, same problems, same crises, polar opposite reaction. And the difference is what's happening in your heart toward what God has already done for you. Completely different way of facing the troubles of life. So what I'm trying to tell you is that this joyful anticipation in the Lord, this joyful anticipation in what God will do when things are hard, it comes from rehearsing our salvation. Remember, that's what Moses was supposed to do for them. He was supposed to talk to the rock and God would strike the rock and the water would flow out of the rock and the people would say, oh, that's right. That's exactly what God did. That's exactly how he brought us out of Egypt. They would have seen it and they would have worshiped. So we look backward to what God has already done in order to look forward with confidence and hope. Don't look for any other encouragement. There is none. Don't put your hope in anything else. In Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots 
and some in horses. Those are human solutions. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Then in Proverbs 3, 5, it says, don't even trust your own understanding to get you out. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I want to give you a positive example because we have lots of negative examples in the Old Testament of people forgetting their salvation, forgetting what God has done, done for them, and then losing heart in the moment of crisis. There's a positive example in Acts chapter 16. This is a story of when Paul and Silas are in prison together. Remember that one? I love this story. I love this story because of, there's one line in the middle of it that means so much to me. It's in Acts 16, 25. It says that they sang. They had been beaten that day. I mean, if, if you've been beaten, I've never been beaten, but I imagine that even breathing is painful when you're, when you're in that kind of condition. But they're singing. These are men who were, there's no doubt that they were tempted to wonder why God had abandoned them, why God had allowed them to be beaten and imprisoned. What was God going to do now? They could have lost heart. But it says that they sang. And then you know what else it says about the other prisoners? These other men who had no idea what these guys were in there for? It says they were listening to them. It says that the noise of their worship filled the prison and the other prisoners were listening to it. Think about it. These men had a reason to harden their hearts, but they didn't. And they were really acting out Psalm 95. They were acting this out. They came before the Lord made a joyful noise, even in the worst circumstances you could imagine. And then God shook the prison and got them out, which is not something they could have anticipated either. However, they sang because they knew that they had a God who does things like that. Let me wrap this up in the next few minutes by reiterating the reason that we're sort of playing Bible hopscotch. This is not normal for a... uh, for a sermon series to go from Numbers to Psalms to John, like we're going to do next week. But there's a reason for it, and I mentioned it earlier. It's because we're following the thread of this story of Meribah. And by the end of it, I really hope that you'll have in your mind, when you hear the word Meribah, you'll go like, oh, water from a rock. And you'll think about Jesus. That's what I want. And that's why we're doing this. In Israel's literature, And in their imagination and in their worship, what's happened here, maybe in five or 600 BC, is that the historical event that preceded them by almost a thousand years has become shorthand for unbelief. Do you see that? Do you see God using it? He says, don't be like, don't do the Meribah thing. That's when they didn't believe. He's saying, believe. So it's become a form of shorthand for unbelief. It's sort of like the World Trade Center is shorthand for Americans for terrorism and senseless violence. When we say World Trade Center, we think, oh yeah, yeah, we remember terrorism. When God said Meribah, they thought, oh yeah, unbelief. Yes, got it. Because it it was a quick way to call all of that up. So 
God can refer to, the, to Meribah and just call up the whole topic of unbelief. And that's what he does here. But he also, as I mentioned earlier, he also does one more thing that's very important. And that is he provides us with a, a vocabulary of unbelief, a way of thinking about unbelief. And that is at sinners having little rocks for hearts. Rocks inside for hearts. And that's going to be extremely important next week as we wrap this up. But I want to, I want to turn with you. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Because after, after Psalm 95, the topic of the story of Meribah kind of branches out in a few places in the New Testament. And we're going to look at the, the one that's the most significant. It's in Hebrews chapter 3 beginning in verse 12. First of all, the psalmist in verse 7, he actually quotes the entire unbelief section of this psalm. So everything after today, if you hear his voice, is quoted in the text of Hebrews, the whole thing, the whole section. That's how you know it's very important because writing words down on scrolls wasn't cheap. It wasn't easy. The whole thing is there. And he actually repeats the first three lines in verse 15. So let's read Hebrews 3.12 and following, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What is that original confidence? The original confidence of standing on the far shore of the Red Sea and looking back at Egypt and knowing that God did that. That's our original confidence. He's saying, hold that firm to the end. As it is said, verse 15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left, left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was the Lord provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief unbelief. Unbelief has always been the basis of our condemnation. Sinners who are condemned are condemned on the basis of unbelief, nothing else. We are saved by faith alone. Unbelief is still the unforgivable sin 3,500 years or so after the incident at Meribah. That's what this is saying. When we turn in worship, when things get difficult and we turn in worship to anything but God to save us, we are acting out the scene at Meribah all over again. We're testing God and we're denying the reality of our salvation. That's what happens. And that's what Hebrews 3 makes of this story. 
briefly, because this is the theme that holds all of these three messages together, let's review the image of Meribah and how we see it being used in the Psalms and the New Testament. In the days of the Exodus, this is in your notes. In the days of the Exodus, Pharaoh was the rock. He had a hard heart towards the people. The people of Israel were the water and the word that brings the water out of the rock was the message of God's deliverance. This was what Moses was supposed to rehearse at Meribah in Numbers 20 and failed. In the days of the psalmist moving forward, in the days of the psalmist, the people were the rock. Their hearts were hard towards the Lord. Their worship was the water that was supposed to come. And the word that brings that water out of that rock was the message of God's deliverance. Same word. You see it? Verse 1, Psalm 95, it says, Let us make a joyful noise to the what? To the rock of our salvation. He's talking about the rock that gave them water. So the song itself, Psalm 95, was a rehearsal of the people's deliverance. And every time they sang it, it was meant to soften their hearts. Remember, remember what God has done. Your principle here, your second fill in the blank there in your notes is that the gospel is the word that brings the water from the rock. Now you may seem like I'm belaboring this, but this is important. There's an image There's an image in Numbers chapter 20. It's in Exodus 17 as well. There's a rock. There's thirsty people. There's water. And what what happens to bring the water out of the rock is a word. A word that Moses was supposed to speak. And the gospel is that word. And it brings that water out of that rock. In every situation where we see that pattern. So, hardening your heart. And this is the answer to the question that we set out at the beginning to answer. Hardening your heart means turning away from the gospel or leaving it behind in search of more immediate saviors to your problems. The psalm, I've always felt this way, the psalm ends awkwardly with a warning. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that just seems like that would be a hard thing to sing at the end of your song, right? None of our hymns end that way, correct? There's a reason, though. There's a reason for this. And and it's because warnings are what the Old Testament had to offer us against the hardness of our hearts. Warnings. That's the Old Testament. But we have a problem, and that's that we're always forgetting. And God knows this about us. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 9 Moses says, only take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. He gave them an assignment, which was to remember. And he gave them, he told them how to remember. He said, put a pile of stones up if, that's, if that'll help you, right? Pile some stones up so that when your kids ask, what's that about? You can tell them, oh, that's when God saved us, Right? All, all throughout the Old Testament, this issue of memory is coming up. And it just goes to show you that remembering things is hard. Am I right? 
Am I allowed to say that now that I'm past the age of 40? Yeah. Some things are easy to remember, apparently. Um, <clears throat> other things are not easy to remember. Remembering things in general is hard. And, and to illustrate this briefly, I want to tell you a story of the, the, the largest uh, journalistic project ever under, undertook. Um, in 2008, before I had kids, back when we could actually get on an airplane, airplane and travel somewhere easily, Dory and I went and we saw Justin and Aaron when they were missionaries in the Philippines. They had only been there for about six months when we went and saw them. It was in the summer of 2008. And Justin and I were in the biggest park in Manila. It's this historic park. It's massive. It's, I think it's maybe the size of Central Park in New York City. It's called Lunetta Park. And we were there and we were, we were actually talking to homeless people because the church that they were going to in Manila was reaching out to the homeless. And we were talking to homeless people. And at one point, we found ourselves talking to some extremely old homeless men. And we realized as we were talking to them that they actually were the right age to have been World War II veterans. Now, in our country, a homeless World War II vet was almost unthinkable because we take better care of those, those men than that, remembering what they did. But there's a lot of poverty in Manila. It's a very poor city. And so we were right. We started asking these men questions. And one of them was actually a survivor of the Bataan Death March, which is a, a war crime that happened in 1942, right at the beginning of the war, three months after Pearl Harbor. And we ended up talking to this man. And we realized, like, not only is he homeless, but people don't remember what he went through. People don't remember what he went through. And so we, Justin and I started talking about this. We, how could we, first of all, how could we bring attention to young people like us? I was young at the time. Um, how could we help young people connect and remember with what their grand, grandparents had, had sacrificed for them? How could we do that? Secondly, how can we ourselves remember what does it take to actually remember something like this? And so this became the subject of my master's thesis. Dory and I went back about 18 months later. We interviewed some people, including some other death march survivors, did some research. Justin and I stood in a mall for an afternoon. This was very interesting. And we, at, we, we stopped every, every young person who would stop and talk to us and knew some English. We stopped them and asked them, do you know what the death march is? Have you ever heard of the Bataan Death March? And time after time, what they said was, I know where Bataan is, but I've never heard of that now. And we thought, okay, well, what about World War II? And almost none of them knew anything about World War II. And it had raged in their country. I mean, like it had torn their country apart 70 years before. So we're finding that nobody could remember anything. Remembering is really hard. It's one of the things that happens in a culture. We forget we forget the sacrifices of previous generations. And so then we took it a step further and we said, okay, what, how, do we, how do we remember something like this? And in 2012, on the, on the day of the 70th anniversary, Justin and I started walking. We walked the entire route of the death march, 66 miles over about four days. And we had water, <laughs> unlike those men. We had a van following us with air conditioning. It was very hot. But we did it. We, we went the whole, the whole route, and that was sort of the culmination of all this research. But in the meantime, I had been all over the place 
talking to Death March survivors, talking to people who knew Death March survivors. I'd even been to New Mexico. There's, a, there's, a, there's an Air Force base out there called White Sands Missile Range. It's massive, and there's nothing out there because they just blow stuff up. Um, but every spring on the anniversary of the Death March, a few thousand people go out there, and they have a marathon through the desert sand, 26 miles, for the express purpose of not letting the memory die. And what I'm trying to tell you is that there are people, I mean, all the World War II vets are, are gone. And there are people all over the world, and there have been for about 20 years now, desperately trying to hang on to the memory of the sacrifices that were made in World War II. And it's not easy. Even when you want to remember, it's not easy. And the point of all of this is that it, it comes naturally to us as human beings to forget. The crisis of today is far more important than the, than the sacrifices that somebody else made for us yesterday. And that's just part of who we are as human beings. And sin also makes us, turns us inwards on our problems in that way. But there was a moment we were interviewing a man named Rafael Estrada. He was in his 90s already, so he was an older World War II vet. And Justin and I sat down with this man, and he was very wealthy, even by our standards. He was a wealthy man. He'd had a, lived a very successful life after the death march. And, and at some point during the interview, I asked him, why do you think people are forgetting? And he shrugged, and he thought about it for a moment. He said, because you can learn the facts but you'll never know what it felt like. That's what he told me. And, af- and from that, I learned that we actually must be continually experiencing our salvation for it to be real to us, for us to remember. We have to be continually experiencing it in order to remember it. So what God has done for us in the past is supposed to remain a living reality to us in the present. That's what it means. And so this is a problem. Our forgetfulness, it's not getting any better. And God knows this about us. And so I wanna, I wanna leave you with two, two verses. First, in, in uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. You don't have to turn there. This is where God is is talking to his people about the new covenant. And he says this. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. There's that image. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What we need is not just a better memory, but new hearts. We need new hearts. And then I'm going to end with 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because Paul picks up on this as well. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What he's saying is all of those people had the same experiences. They experienced things that if you and I saw it, we would lose our minds, right? Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, an ocean parting so they could walk through. I mean, they saw these things and Paul is saying they had these experiences and then what happened? They died because they wouldn't believe. They committed idolatry like, you know, a few weeks later. And Paul is saying that you, being associated with the church cannot save you. Being associated with God's people is not what saves a person. He's saying that you can even experience the power of God and still die in your unbelief. It's possible. That's what he's saying. And then he says this. This is, I promise, this is the last thing. In verse four, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. That's where we're gonna pick up next week because Jesus picks up on the theme and he says that about himself. And that's in John chapter seven and that's what we'll look at next week. So let's close with prayer and sing a hymn.